0: Amen. All right, so we are going through the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2 is where we are. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 17, and the title is Creation of Man. So let me read a few of the verses here in chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done, Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. We'll begin right there, and the simple point that that the creation is complete. Right now, as uh, the writer Moses is putting this together, he gives the account. At this point in time, creation was done. God is not on this long uh, creative process. He it did it in six days. At the end of those six days, he rested. And um, this day is noted. It's, it's special. it's sanctified. it's It's a holy day that God set apart. Um, and it's a, a day that we need to make certain that we understand he rested from all things? that does that mean that he, as the deist says that he created this earth and then he just traveled to the other side of the universe and said, Hope you all farewell, and that he is still resting from this process. No, that's that's not what's being taught here. I said he, he rested from creating. He he ceased in the creation process, and so he no longer was engaging on that level. It is interesting, and there are other creation accounts that the Egyptians have and the Babylonians have and others. And what's interesting when you look at these, that um, when creation was complete, is that God rested because now man was going to attend to all of his needs. And so he no longer had to worry about getting involved in doing stuff because man was going to now serve him. Man was created um, to help God, if you will, which gives you a, a lower view of God as if he needs help. But what did Jesus say? I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. What what did Jesus tell us about the Sabbath day? That the Sabbath day was made for man, not for God. It was made for man. And so we have such a contrast between those um, ancient accounts, the, the biblical account and other ancient accounts of the rest of God. Why was he resting? Well, this is his way of saying he's no longer creating. It's a completed work. But the, 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 this day was also given for man. It was to be a blessing to man, to rest. And I think we all know the value of taking a day off. We all know the value of, of allowing our bodies to be refreshed. And um, this is a, a, a good thing. But the idea that God ceased from all interaction with mankind has so many errors in it. But let me just give you one, John five seventeen. But Jesus answered them, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. So yes, the Lord rested from his creative acts, but that does not mean that he then left and ceased working among mankind. Of course, he had been working in Israel and bringing them a a Savior um, and raising them up as a nation to the Savior Jesus may come. So God has been working since creation. But what has his work primarily been as we think about it with, with man's purposes? In the beginning, he was creating the world for man. But what has God been doing? What's the work primarily that he has been doing since he rested on the seventh day? He's been working to redeem us. He's been working to, if you will, recreate us. And um, after Jesus had uh, come for that work, and He, when he was hanging upon the cross, he declared on the cross what? It is finished. What's finished? The work of redemption that he said he and his father had been focused upon. So this is, again, God has been focused upon mankind, both in creation and in the process to recreate us. That is to be born again, to be redeemed, to be saved. And so God has made man the center of his work. And even today, We read in John 14, 1-3, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. I I believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to work. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. So after Jesus had finished the work, Of redeeming mankind. We read in Hebrews, he went and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Yet there's still plans that he has for mankind. And he has been preparing a place for us. And when the Father says, the place is ready, then Jesus will come and he will bring his church to himself. And we will be with him. We read in Romans 8.34 that he's making intercession for us. He's praying for us. He's interceding on our behalf. So the idea that God is not involved in your life is just, it's not a biblical one. The Lord's coming back and he says that he's coming back and that his reward is with him to give to you. We read this in Revelation. Many times we read about how the Lord says, my reward is with me. I'm going to reward you. So the Lord has not only created you, He's redeemed you. He's interceding for you. He's preparing a place for you. And when He returns, He's going to come with a reward for you as you've walked in those uh, works that He has planned for your life as a believer. Kind of like David. Who is man that you are mindful of Him? Who are we that God would have this much attention upon us? Who are stiff-necked and rebellious, who often go our own way, who often call into question the works and the ways of God. And yet He is so patient with us, and He is so kind with us. The Lord loves you. As we talked about on Wednesday night, He loves you so much that He sent His only Son. This is the incarnation. It's all about the love of God. Jesus born in Bethlehem is about God loving you and sending His Son. To redeem you, that He might recreate you, that we might be a new creation in Christ Jesus. God's affection is upon you. God's concern is upon you. God's attention is upon you. You may not, and you may not have that in your life in a significant way, but even if you do have it, you don't have it like this. Nobody loves you like God loves you, nobody cares for you the way God cares for you. Now in your hurt and the pain that maybe you're feeling and in your loneliness, remember that you have a maker who has made you. He has formed you. He is aware of your needs. What a beautiful picture we have. Now the Lord on this day, uh, the seventh day, rested and then later in history with Israel, he makes a covenant with them. And part of this covenant is that they should keep the Sabbath day, the Saturday, and they should rest on this day. And this is a a, a covenant that was made between Israel and uh, the Lord. And this raises many questions. What day then should we be worshiping the Lord on? But here's the problem with that question. Because when we talk about the Sabbath day, it's a Sabbath day, fill in the blank, Sabbath day what? Rest. obviously we worship God every day but if you go through the Old Testament you do not find a prescription on the seventh day that that's when they should go to synagogue because synagogue didn't happen until after the exile that was an idea that was implemented and came later as a matter of fact the center of worship for the nation of Israel took place where? the temple at the tabernacle But on the Sabbath day, you could only travel so far. So if you were up in Dan and the temple is down in Jerusalem, can you go on the Sabbath day and then travel back? Well, no, the distance is too great. And you would break the Sabbath day rest if you made the effort. You don't even find any place where on the Sabbath day you must read. On the Sabbath day you must pray. It's on the Sabbath day you must rest. So those who take up this charge... That those that meet on Sunday, like we are doing, are not keeping the Sabbath because it's on the Sabbath day that we're supposed to do this. You've heard me say this before, and it's somewhat tongue-in-cheek, probably a little sarcastic, but I think there's really something to it. Did you lay in bed a little longer yesterday? Did it take you a little longer to get out of your pajamas on Saturday? And did you just kind of hang out? Then you were keeping the Sabbath day. It's rest. That's what it is. But this is not a theme that is picked up in the New Testament in a literal sense that we should keep. So those who make a big deal and say that if you don't worship on Saturday, then you are not a follower of God and you will have judgment come upon you. And they can get really dogmatic about this. Um, This is not something that is founded in the New Testament. Colossians 2, 16 through 17. Here are a couple of verses that maybe will help us understand That this is not something that is enforced under the new covenant, but it was something that was for Israel. So Colossians 2, 16-17. So let no one judge you in food or in drink, or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. All of these things were prefiguring the work of Jesus Christ. The Sabbath day was a day to rest. And in Jesus we find rest. And so Jesus is the fulfillment. And Paul says to the Colossians, Don't let people judge you on these things. What you eat and on the calendar and what day of the week you go um, and rest. Romans chapter 14, 5 through 6. To me this verse, these verses so clearly state how we should think on this. It says, one person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and give God thanks. So if you're having a bacon cheeseburger and you are so thankful for it, there's no problem with that. If you are eating kosher and you're thanking the Lord for it, there's no problem for that. If you meet on Sunday and you're worshiping the Lord, there's no problem with that. If you're meeting on Saturday and worshiping the Lord, there is no problem with that. By the way, you know, Sabbatarians never get upset about the midweek service. It's Wednesday. It's Thursday. It's Thursday. Got a Monday night, Tuesday night home fellowship, a Thursday night women's study, uh, you know Monday night college group. Why are we? Why do we obsess about the the Saturday or the Sunday? You know we worship God every day, so there is freedom. One other passage, and I'm not going to turn to it, but just Acts chapter 15, when the church was meeting and trying to figure out what do we require of the Gentiles as it relates to the law of Moses. How much do we impose upon them? Do they have to be circumcised? Do they have to keep the dietary laws? And the answer is, no, you don't. They said we're going to place no greater burden on them. The only thing that they said was, don't go worship idols and eat, where, and, you know, eat uh, at the, the temple where these animals are being sacrificed. Now later Paul says, if you buy it in the marketplace and you get a good deal on a T-bone, enjoy it, just don't ask questions. But if you're actually at the temple... And the animal's just been sacrificed, and now you're eating that meat in that environment. In that environment, you're becoming one with that idol. How could we, what what common ground is there between light and darkness? So in Acts 15, it was about where, it's not about the menu, it's about the venue, as uh, one commentator says. Witherington says that it's not about the menu, it's about the venue. Their venue was they were at a temple and they were worshiping and they were drinking blood there and they were eating meat that was sacrificed to animals there. It was a worship experience. But Paul later says, hey, again, if you buy meat in the marketplace, just don't ask any questions. Just go home and eat it. Um, so the point being, there is nothing required of the church or the Gentiles to meet on the Sabbath. And there is evidence that the early church met on Sunday to commemorate um, the resurrection of the Lord. This is what Scripture says. But there is this typology picture. There is this picture that kind of Paul alluded to there in that Colossians passage when he says, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substances of Christ. We're not clinging to a day. We cling to what that day represented we're not clinging to a sacrifice, we're clinging to what that sacrifice represented. Jesus was the Lamb of God, that final sacrifice. Jesus is our rest. And I want to encourage you to take some time to read Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, where it clearly states that we as believers enter the rest as we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So there's a rest that is available. There's a peace that is available. And this is something that all of us are in need of. is this spiritual rest. Because outside of Christ, there is a restlessness of the soul. There's an anxiousness. There's a a striving. There's this, this turbulent kind of a feeling. I've got to get things right. I've got to find the Lord. And then in Christ, you find that and there's a rest and there's a peace that comes to a person's life. You know, one thing that um, and I hope this is the case for you. But one thing that a lot of us like to do um, at the end of the day is we love to just walk into our own homes, right? You just get to walk into your own home. The day is over. All the, all the toil, of just physical toil, maybe, maybe other types of things, emotional, physical. Maybe there's been conflict and just the whole thing that goes on when we are going through this life. And it can, it's full of all kinds of troubles. But you come home and you're just like, ah, I love going to my house. I love, I love going home. I also like being here, so I've got to, I've got to balance all of that. But when I go home, I, lo- I love being in my house. I love just sitting down, you know. It's, it's nothing special, I just, but it's my house. And there's peace there, and I've come home, you know. This is what a lot of people say, and I bet some of you maybe even said this, when you came to faith in Jesus Christ. So many people say, when I put my faith in Jesus Christ, it was like I came home. That's an interesting picture. But that, 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 the idea that I think people are communicating when they speak of that coming home experience, when they put their faith and trust in Jesus is, I found rest. I found a place that feels like mine, that feels comfortable, this feels right. And that is what we find in Christ Jesus. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. Jesus invites us to this. Turn with me there because I want all of you to see it. Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. It's one of those verses you want to be able to find this one. It's a good one to share with people. It's a good one for For us to remind ourselves of of what's available and the rest that is available. So Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. And Jesus is speaking to to you, to us. Just listen to the, the voice of the Lord. He says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you, what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for i am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light this is what it means to come to god this is what it means to come to jesus is that you'll find that rest that peace that he has planned for you he you know many times religion is a hard laborious thing and that really is the context in which jesus was making this That statement, the the Pharisees, the laws and the regulations and everything they put on you. But why don't you come to me? Because when you come to me, it's it's easy. I'm gentle. I'm not heavy handed. I'm not harsh. I'm not domineering. I'll put a yoke on you that fits just right. What I ask of you, when I ask it of you, it's not going to feel overbearing. It's not going to be dominating. It's just going to feel, it's going to fit like a glove, if you will. What God has for your life. And those of us who have put our faith and trust in the Lord, we can say that the commandments of the Lord are not burdensome. They are not, we don't chafe under them. These are things that we thank the Lord for. Lord, thank you that you've told me how to treat my wife. Thank you you've told me how to raise my kids. Thank you, you've told me how to deal with bitterness in my heart, or anger, or or lust, or materialism. Thank you. Yes, Lord, I want to live like that. And when I live like that, it just fits so perfectly. Religion, though, is very different. Because religion puts a yoke on you, and it demands of you. And it, it, it calls you to do something you can't do in and of yourself. Well, what was the purpose of the law? Why did God give the law in the Old Testament? Great question. And it's answered for us. The law was meant to be a tutor. And what was the law teaching us? You can't do it. Can I get any amens to I can't do it? I mean, we cannot fulfill the law in ourselves, And so the Lord says, I've got a yoke I want to place on you, and it's easy. Well, tell me about this yoke, Lord. Believe in me. What's the work I must do to have eternal life? You want to know what work you need to do? Jesus said, here's the work you need to do. Believe in me. Believe. There's the work. It fits us. We've been created to be a people of faith. And the Lord wants to bring rest to your soul. That does not mean every event in your life is going to be trouble-free. Not while we live in this life. There's going to be difficulty. There's going to be hardship. There's going to be heartbreak. There's going to be disappointment. There's going to be failure. That is a fact. That happens in this life. But what Jesus is promising is not a trouble free life. He's saying, I will bring, I will give your soul no trouble. You'll have a trouble-free soul so that no matter what's going on around you, you will still have rest because you have been reunited with me. You've entered into a relationship with me and that's where the rest is. Again, going back to the creation count, six days and the sixth day created man and then there's a rest. It's a picture of the Lord resting but also the rest that man gets to enter into. The peace The way the world is today is not the way God intended it. God intended that there would be a seventh day in our life. And it would be a day of rest. It's not six days of driving hard and being crazy. And then on the seventh day we follow. No, in creation, God wanted us to live in the seventh day. He wanted us to walk in this rest. Which becomes so clearly evident with what the writer of Hebrews says and what Jesus offers, rest for our souls. So my question is simple, do you have rest in your life or is it just turmoil? Not not your circumstances here, in your heart, in your mind. Is there a peace with God? Do you know that you're connected with God? That you've come to Him through His Son, Jesus Christ, and that your sins are forgiven, and that there's nothing you must do to earn this salvation. Now you just must live the life out that that He's called you to live. If you don't know that, you need to come to Jesus because he wants you to have rest. Come to me, he says. And Jesus is looking at you. His eyeballs are on your eyeballs at this very moment. And he's saying, come to me. You've got to respond to that. You've got to respond to to your creator, the second person of the Godhead, Jesus, looking at you and saying, come to me and I will give you rest. His eyes have met your eyes at this very moment. Now you've either come and you are thanking the Lord afresh for this relationship or you haven't, but the decision is before you. And and, and to just turn and walk away, it makes a statement. If I came up to you and I said, hey, would you come over to my house tonight? And I looked at you and I know you heard me and you went, (laughs) you walked away. I mean, you made a statement, didn't you? You didn't use any words. If you just remained silent, staring back at me, I would pick up real quick. I, I think i you know, who knows if you are or not, but I think we all have our, our own evaluation ourselves. I think I'm pretty good with social cues, you know. And if you like hesitated for two or three seconds and just kind of looked at me, I'm like, and never mind, you know, I, that's okay. I mean, it's gonna be an awkward meal now. I don't want you to come. Please don't come. I, you make a statement like that. Jesus is saying, will you come to me and can I give you rest? Can I make things right between you and me and the Father? Would you do that? Your response is either yes or no. You've got to confess Jesus with your own mouth, but if you don't confess him, then you've denied him already. Come to Jesus. Let's keep on reading back there in Genesis 2, verses 4 through Seven says, This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So here we see the formation of man by God. And again, we talked about this word formed last week. Remember we went into uh, Jeremiah where the Lord says, before uh, you were born, I knew you. I formed you in your mother's womb. It's the same Hebrew word, yasar, and it's the word that a potter uses with a clump a, a lump of clay and and what, what is the lord doing he 's getting he 's going into the dust of the ground and he is forming and he is fashioning don 't think of you just being a pile of dirt. Think of an artist forming a vessel that pleases him that 's the picture that we 're to pick up here it 's a potter who is laboring over that piece of of uh, clay to make it into a work of art you are God's art piece and he formed you initially he formed man and the, from the dust of the ground but every one of us has been formed by God in our mother's womb it's his creative process it's not simply a biological process it is that but where does the soul and the spirit and life come from that's something that God does. He breathes that in to mankind. It's interesting. After Jesus had died and risen from the dead, and He met with His disciples, and He met with them. Okay, so we can't know that Jesus came to recreate mankind in the first creation. He breathed life into Adam, but in the second creation, in the born again experience, at the end of the Gospel of John, He looked upon His disciples and He breathed on them he breathed on them he recreated them they became what we call born again you were born the first time and the lord had created you in your mother's womb but but that's a physical that's a physical creation birth but you need to be born again and so the lord came that he might breathe life back into mankind, not physical life, because they already had air in their lungs, but they didn't have the spiritual life that was lost in the fall, which we'll get into in the next couple of weeks. We keep on reading verses 8 through 17. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food." The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. No, a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four riverheads. The name of the first was Pishon. It is one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stones are there. The name of the second river is Gishon. It is the one which goes around the land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hedakel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is Euphrates. Thus the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord commanded man, saying, Of the tree of the garden you may freely eat. Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree... Of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now we're going to see the fall of man in chapter 3. But I want to talk a little bit about God's plan. God here gives man a choice. He gives man a free will. Now I know that the Calvinists and the Arminians love To make this the debate of whether there's a free will or not a free will. And this is what I believe. I believe that man has a free will. Otherwise, how do you explain choice? But I do not believe that it all takes away from the sovereignty of God. (laughs) Because if you think about this, God is sovereign. There's this massive umbrella of God's sovereignty that is over all things. And underneath this umbrella is man who is given a free will. God in his sovereignty has given you a free will to act as you will to do as you want and he didn't make us robots he didn't make us people that were pre-determined and programmed in our mind I will make a people and they will only and ever worship me and only and ever do the things that I ask them to do that's what I want you know, But God didn't do that. He gave man a free will. He gave you, he gave me the power to make a choice. To obey him or to disobey him. To follow him or to say, I don't want anything to do with you. Now it's recommended and advisable that you follow and obey the Lord. But he has given man this capacity to choose. Because God wants us to obey him. Obedience has within it the element of choice and free will. If I make you do what I want you to do, that's called coercion, not obedience. God does not coerce us. God gives us a free choice. There's there's all kinds of ramifications because of that. Sometimes the benefit there's great benefit because God has given people the capacity to choose love and choose the highest good for another. When people do that and they obey the Lord and they love one another, it brings great blessing. But when people choose to disobey God and to be self-seeking, it brings harm and hardship upon this world, which we have more than enough to observe. Don't blame God for the evil in this world. It's not God's fault that people have rebelled against Him. Well, why did He even make it possible? Because He wanted your worship to be real and genuine. I can say quite confidently that my wife loves me. Because when I asked her to marry me, she said yes. And we've been saying yes to each other every day since that. We love each other. And there's that choice. But if I just rounded her up and took her and said, you will now be my wife. And she was kicking and screaming, but I was able to manipulate the system and overwhelm her. And I said, oh, she loves me. In the background, she'd be going, no, I don't. I don't love him. But her her choice, her response to me, it means that she's able to express that love. And therefore, that relationship becomes meaningful. God wants your following of him to be meaningful so yeah there's there's all kinds of you know collateral damage that comes with that because man has been disobedient to God and he does not walk in love towards his neighbor but still God wanted there to be a love relationship not a robotic relationship and so he gives man the choice In the garden, you can eat of every tree that you want. There's even a tree of life that's now in heaven. You can look at that in Revelation 22, verse 2. But there was only one tree that they were not allowed to eat, and that was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What exactly does that mean? That's a good question. And you can spend a lot of time reading on exactly what it was. And we'll see this again in chapter 3, that after man sins and eats of this tree... Uh, So we'll we'll bring that up a little bit more. But let me just read to you this this quote from uh, John Calvin. He says, We now understand what is meant by abstaining from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Namely, that Adam might not, in attempting one thing or another, rely upon his own prudence. But that cleaving to God alone, he might become wise only by his obedience. This This is the heart of God. Another author says, this refers to the uh, wisdom, specifically the special wisdom that is God's soul's preserve, which man should not aspire to attain. And you can think of Ezekiel 28, where we see the king of Tyre seeking to become wise like God. Um, So this is an attempt... Not just to gain discernment, not just to gain um, understanding, but to gain that which belongs to God. So whatever exactly that was, because we read in Genesis 3 that man has become like us. So there's something that happened when they ate of this tree. And to the best of my understanding, I'm not going to be dogmatic on it, but this is, this is what, I, what I'm rolling with, is I believe this was a statement it says, we are unwilling to be dependent upon you. We are going to become independent. We're going to think for ourselves. We're going to do what we want to do. And your, uh, your wisdom of how to live life is not sufficient. It was a rebellion. It was a high rebellion against God and Him having that ability to lead us and to guide us through this life. And it's that what man is still doing today. And all of us have to deal with this. The Lord tells us how to walk. The Lord tells us how to live. Even as Christians, we have the will of God laid out in front of us. And you you feel, and I feel, our flesh that sometimes wants to rail against that and it wants to do its own thing. We know what Paul spoke of as, I know what the right thing is to do, but I also find that there's within me this other desire to do what I want to do. And there's a war between the two. God help me, he says. You know, victories found in the Lord. Today, I am certain that there's at least one of us in here that is faced with a decision between every tree and that one tree. There's freedom to do all kinds of things, but there's this one thing that's in front of me, and I know what God's will is on it, but I'm not willing to bow to that. I'm not willing to yield to that. I'm not willing to submit myself to that. I want to do life my way. I want to have the prerogative to make all decisions and do whatever I want. I don't want to come under the submission of the Lord. And that is that same rebellious spirit that was found there in the garden. The main choice we have to deal with today is will you come to the Lord and will you have life? In Matthew chapter 7, verses 24-29, through 29, you know this story well. The wise man built his house upon the rock. Whose life, whose principles are you building your life upon? Are you building it upon the Lord and allowing His Word to be the thing that leads you and guides you and becomes that foundation for your life? Or are you like, listen, I'm going to do what I want to do. I've got my own way of doing this, and I'm going to do it my way. That's that same rebellious spirit that Adam and Eve fell into. You see, you know the word of God and you know the will of the Lord for your life. You know what he says about this matter with your finances or this matter with this relationship or this issue in your thought life or this issue with another person. You know what the will of God is it's to not or it's to do something that would be positive. And yet you're struggling with it. You're like, well, I just don't know if I want to. That's exactly what's going on here. It's like the church at Laodicea. The church of Laodicea thought they were rich. They thought they were beautifully clothed. They thought they were in great health. But the Lord says, no, that's a wrong evaluation. As I look at you, you're poor, miserable, blind, and naked. You think you're clothed well, you have perfect sight, that you have all kinds of money, but you are a hot mess and you don't even know it. But I counsel you to buy gold from me. I counsel you to come and allow me to touch your eyes that you might see and that I might clothe you. See, even the church found this independent spirit that says, I will not be dependent upon God. I will not allow the wisdom of the Lord to be what speaks into my life. I must gain my own wisdom. And I don't mean the wisdom that comes from the fear of the Lord. It's the wisdom that tries to usurp God's authority over your life. And we become wise in our own opinion. And it sounds like, well, I just think and I don't really care what the Bible says and that's your opinion or that's what God says but for me, this is what I want to do. And everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. The days of the judges. So the Lord would call us to submission. The plan that God has was that He made us His special creative act and that we would walk obedient to him fully trusting him saying Lord whatever you say whatever you will that is what I will do I don't need to get special knowledge of evil and knowledge I don't need to go outside of of that because all I need to do is hear from you all I need to do is get guidance from you and if you say it Lord then that's what I want And even in our prayer life, this can become manifest as we pray for this thing, you know, for that thing. We're asking the Lord, this is what I want. But I know many of you do this because I've heard you pray many times. But Lord, I want what you want. I mean, I'm asking for this, but at the end of the day, I only want what you want, Lord. That is the spirit that the Lord created us to walk in. Not the one that's constantly grinding and pushing against what the Lord has said. And the church is full of people, unfortunately, that are standing and they're not communicating this. They're, they're saying that, well, you know the Bible says this, the revealed word and mind of God, it says this, but you know that part's probably not accurate. You probably can just whatever do, because now today we have so much more understanding uh, all the way back to Genesis, isn't it? Unwilling to submit to the Lord. Unwilling to just say, you know, Lord. And I pray that each and every one of you are one that wants to be dependent upon the Lord. Under him, wearing that yoke that he places upon us so gently and so perfectly, that really it does it, it fits like a glove. And you will not chafe under the ways of the Lord. But that requires faith. You have to trust. And the Lord is of a proven character. What more do you need to know of the character of God than that he sent his only son to die on the cross for you, to redeem you, to take the punishment for your sin? He loves you. He loves you even to the point that he is willing to die upon the cross that you might have life. That's all you need to know about him. That's all you need to know. He is a trustworthy character. I just don't know. that. You know, if... If I was to come to you and say, man, I've got to find a babysitter for my children. Now, listen, they don't need it anymore. But and if in that day, I need a babysitter. And Well, so I'll be glad to watch my baby, babysitter for your children. And I'll say, wow, I don't know about that. I've just made an evaluation about you that's, that's hurtful, isn't it? I've just said, I, I, I just... I'm not sure if you're going to take good care of my kids. I've made a character evaluation about you because I'm unwilling to trust you and have faith in you. Now listen, sometimes we shouldn't trust certain people, okay? But with the Lord, we should always trust Him. The Lord says, hey, why don't you entrust me with this precious thing of your life? I don't know, I don't know. What are we saying? saying, there's something about you I'm just not sure about. But look who he is. He is your creator and your redeemer, and you can trust him. Father, we thank you for your word and your truth. We pray that you would speak to us of the beauty and the wonder of your creation. That we would stand back and just lift up our hands and thank you for every beautiful tree, every flowering tree, every tree that gives us fruit. The creation you've made indeed is very good. But Lord, may we also just be thankful for being made in your image and that we've been remade and are being fashioned to look exactly like your son. Thank you, Lord, for this.